Welcome everyone to PWN's Debut Review. I'm Courtney Harler. For episode two of season five, Ray Brunt joins me once more to talk with Pablo Cartaya. Pablo is the award-winning author of several books for children and young adults, as well as a screenwriter, speaker, and educator. His debut novel, The Epic Fail of Arturo Zamora, published in 2017. His latest novel, The Last Beekeeper, A Climate Dystopia, published in July of 2022. Today's topics include authenticity, voice, creative process, community, family, culture, identity, pandemic parenting, environmental responsibility, unions, and the literary adoration of abuelas. So don't look away. Here are Pablo Cartaya and Ray Brunt. All right. So today I'm here with Pablo Cartaya and Ray Brunt. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, Courtney. How are you? I am well. Good to be here. Ray's back with us today to talk with Pablo. And I think, you know, Ray, you have kind of a special connection between Pablo and this podcast. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that it certainly bears mentioning that, you know, one of the one of the highlights of our graduate school together, Courtney, um, mm-hmm. was I had Pablo as an instructor. I don't know if you did or not, but it was for a public speaking interview type course. I don't remember the title of it, Pablo. Do you recall? I know uh, talk, talk Like Ted was one of the books we read for it. Yeah. I, I, you know, you, you come up with those creative things in the moment and then you sort of forget. Forget about <laughs> it. Yeah, right. I hear you. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, the one thing that I remember is uh, from that class is authenticity takes practice. And I think I read that in that Ted Light. Uh, talk like Ted book. But anyhow, um, one of the, actually probably the biggest memory I have of graduate school is the fact that they ran out of rum at a bar in Jamaica. I still don't understand how that happened. But well, the second, we were there. <laughs> the runner up, the close runner up is we had this class and we had to interview each other. And Hannah Harley, who was one of the students, she and I did this interview together and I interviewed her and I pretended like I was sitting in for Terry Gross and we were on fresh air together. So after the fact. that You see that I remember. Very remember that? Okay. This is Ray Brunt and we're on fresh air today. Hannah? Uh, anyhow. So after the class, you came over to me and said, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And I was like, no, I never, I never thought about doing a podcast. So um, that kind of stuck with me. And, uh, you know, several years later, after graduating and um, working with Project Right Now um, as an instructor, as a board member and so forth, I thought, why not start a podcast? So that's, that was basically the, uh, the impetus behind the podcast uh, and and starting the podcast at Project right now was that little seed that you planted, Pablo, about five years ago or so. So thank you for planting the seed. I was thinking podcast formats concurrently. I think Ray and I were on like sort of the same brain wavelength, but didn't know it. And so when I 
pitched a podcast idea to Ray, he was like totally ready to receive it. He was like, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So it, yeah, it all came together in the end several, several years later, but that's, that's the, the seed of this pod is that class that Ray took on the Hummingbird Terrace, I believe it was called, in Jamaica at our resort where we held our last um, residency and, and did our graduation. So yeah, good good memories and you know just goes to show how how the work pays off eventually and how impactful our instructors can be, you know, even over you know the rest of our lives, not not just you know during our program, but for the rest of our lives and and how we perceive the work and look at the work. So I love that story, Ray. You never know how it's going, how things will turn out. I love hearing stories like this from former students, you know, and as when I serve in the capacity of, of a mentor or, or, or a, a teacher in any, in any way, you, you, you're, you're not doing, you're not teaching for yourself. You're, you're hoping to give some bit of knowledge that you have learned or some bit of idea or some link that you see to a student and then you just leave it there. It's not yours anymore. And it just makes me so happy to hear that that, that one encounter that we had, Ray, it, it, it sort of planted this seed for you to do this wonderful project with Courtney and with the team that you set up there. I mean, the, you know, looking through the website and all this, like all the outreach that you're doing, not just, you know, for adults, but especially because, you know, this is my, my real, my purview is, is in children and young adults and doing all that outreach. And it just makes me just incredibly like happy and proud. And, and I'm just, uh, I'm just really, uh, really touched and, um, and amazed that you, you took that seed and now you've made this wonderful thing. Well, thanks. And I, I think Jennifer Chauhan, who's the, um, the co one of the co-founders of uh, project right now will be glad to hear all this too, because yeah, the outreach that we do in this organization is really incredible. And it's, it, flies under the radar a little bit. A lot of people don't know about it, but we really act as the creative writing department for many schools in our area that would not have a creative writing department. So thank you. So so on that topic, Pablo, we want to take you back to the beginning of the beginning and talk to you about like what first inspired you to write. And was it in an, a particular teacher or instructor or um, maybe someone in your family who also wrote? What, what first inspired you to write your books? It's always an interesting way, a question and, and a complex way to answer it when I, when, I, when I get this particular question, because I think that as, as writers, we, we anticipate to create stories that have some semblance of, of, a, of a linear uh, movement, you know, from a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, with our climax and our denouements and all that, you know, you know literary English class stuff that we're taught. But, but oftentimes when you step back to look at what the actual narrative, what the actual story is, there's, it's anything but a straight line. There is a number of moments in my life that have led me to write the type of work that I write right now, if that makes any sense. There was never, you know, I, I you know, as a kid, as a kid, I, I loved Raw Dahl. And, you know, um, I loved Jules Verne. Um, I don't write any fantasy, really. Um, and, you know, one of the books that that most resonated with me when I was in high school was Ralph Ellison's uh, The Invisible Man. 
And I didn't understand why. I just, I mean, the, the writing, um, but also something about the story connected with me and I, 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 I couldn't place why. And hearing uh, Matt De La Pena, who, who won the Newbery for, for the Newbery, which is the children's, uh, like the, the largest book award for, for writers of, of children's literature. When I heard him speak uh, in graduate school, and he started writing, he, was, he, he had these characters that were of Latinx backgrounds, but like sort of the heroes in these stories. And I was like, wow, that's, that sounds really cool that Matt, who's Mexican-American, and I'm me, who's Cuban-American, I'm like, oh, bet, that's like, that's somebody who's like up there speaking. And we're, we're like, I'm trying to write and learn how to write in this field, and he's already doing it. And we're kind of like representing this sort of Latinx experience in different ways. And it, that was another uh, foundational moment that allowed me to think about the kind of work that I was going to write. You know, back in Cuba, my, fa my great grandfather, my abuelo, my bisabuelo Leonardo, who my son is named after, um, he was a physician and a poet. Um, and I didn't really know this information until later on. Uh, so I, I suppose the love of words somehow may, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's genetic. I don't know. But all of these things have contributed in different ways, right? And I would, I would probably venture to say these are positive influences. And then we have the negative ones. The things that, that, we, that we encounter, like having a graduate school teacher tell me that I shouldn't write with so much Spanish in my text because that's not normal. The woman from Mississippi who said that, that I didn't look like the typical brown boys that she had met. Um, those, those kind of, or, or the, or the, the woman in, in Illinois who said, who, after I spoke to a group of 500 uh, middle schoolers said, came up to me afterwards and everybody, you know, I was on a high cause it just felt so good. And the kids were all, and I was talking about identity and I was doing all this and I was proud. And this woman comes up right behind me and she says, you know, you would have never been allowed to talk 15 years ago in this community. So these are, these are the kinds of negative things that, that sort of make me dig my heels in deeper into my work, into my journey. And again, there is no straight line. These are, it's an amalgamation of moments that make a writer's life and an amalgamation of, of experiences that help form the type of writing they will do. I find that to be pretty fascinating. I mean, I, I said before that the, um, one of the things that I remembered from the class that you taught was uh, the phrase, authenticity takes practice. And you found your voice at some point and as a writer, and it took practice, right? I mean, it just didn't happen overnight. And the fact that you were able to, um, you know, in, the way you include Spanish in your work and all of that's part of your authenticity. And, you know, I think you're to the point now, obviously, where you know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. And these people have driven you, you know, in that direction, I think. 
Yeah, and I think that that you build that authenticity by being an observer of the world around you and an observer of your internal thoughts and feelings and emotions. And, you know, I think that the writer is at their best when they are going inward and outward, inward and outward constantly, constantly exploring the world, uh, the interiority of their own lives and how they all intersect and connect and then how they create an authenticity in the words once they put them to paper. So Pablo, I listened uh, just this week again to the audiobook, um, The Epic Fail of Arturo Zamora, which was your debut novel, correct? That, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I have a picture book, but that one I, I really consider my my welcome to the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just just love the voice there. Loved, you know, you talk about you know, the, the in and out of the author's process, like exploring the exteriority and then the interiority. Um, I especially love that with this character. And I also especially loved the book's focus on family and community. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about this book's beginnings and how it came to be? Yeah. So that one was really, it took shape in you know, it took, well, so, so let, let me backtrack a little bit. So like at one point I decided that I wanted to write and I wanted to be the great Cuban American novelist. I didn't, I don't even know what that means or what that looks like. <laughs> I think it, it's like my, my often grandiosity, you know, it's like, you know, you have Guillermo Caprera Infante, you have all these, uh, you know, all these great Cuban writers, but I wanted to be the Cuban American. And, and, and then, I ended up writing a story about, and I don't know why I wrote a story about a teen who had lost her memory. And then I created this 400 page epic fantasy. And I, it just, I was like, I just wanted to write this fantasy and I wrote it on word it was like 1.5. It wasn't even double space. <laughs> um, it was. It was just a it hot mess. <laughs> I mean, so it was probably. It was like. It was almost a hundred thousand words, and uh, no, a hundred and twenty thousand words, and it was gigantic, meandering, and but I felt so connected to this. And I took the best pieces because, you know, oftentimes if you write that amount of words, there's got to be something in there that's good. Yeah, hopefully. So I took <laughs> some of the best pieces of it and I used that to get me into graduate school. And, and, and I was lucky enough. But I thought that Columbia, of course, they wanted to hear, you know, an epic fantasy, you know, in their MFA program. Uh, but obviously, Columbia University does not do epic fantasies. Um, so so they uh, they said, no, thank you. And I ended up taking, I ended up getting my master's degree in uh, at Vermont College of Fine Arts with a specialization in writing for children and young adults. And I happened to see it because I was like, well, who wants to hear? Who wants to, where can I learn to write? A children, you know, a, a teenager, from a teenager's point of view, where can I learn to write? that and and I found this program at at Vermont and and I came very excited because I felt very proud of of this epic fantasy um and I got obliterated in my first 
uh, workshop. I mean, it got my first round, which actually has led me to the way that I teach my own workshops because I felt so terrible in the way that I got uh, annihilated in that class that I was like, if I ever lead a workshop, I will never do it like this. Hey, you don't want people to feel harmed when they walk out the door, right? I mean, I, I wanted to scrap the the story. My my dear friend Lisa Papa Demetriou, who's a you know New York Times bestselling author, she was in the class with me, and and I just and she's like, I'm so sorry that that happened, you know. And I was like, I don't think I want to write anymore. Like this sucks. Like it was just an awful experience. And and she told me she's like, don't listen to them. That doesn't matter. And that evening we heard Matt De La Pena read. That's a that's and, a special day in your life for sure. It really is because what, as he was reading, I started, you know, and, and maybe, I, maybe I should admit this, but when I hear readers, I kind of like zone out and start imagining my own stuff. And maybe I shouldn't admit that, but you know, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's listening to, to, to good writing. Um, I think elicits our own or activates rather it activates our own sort of imagination and our own processes. I think at least it does for me. Um, so I'm listening, but I'm also sort of activating this sort of creative element of my brain too. That's allowing me to think about, well, what about this story and this, and this is as I'm listening to someone's words, I listen to Matt and then I get this image of this kid, a teenage, you know, early teen, 13, almost 14 year old kid in the, in the back of the house, in the kitchen of his family's restaurant, struggling with, uh, washing the dishes because he was assigned as the junior assistant dishwasher. And I, and I start thinking about this scene and then his like older cousin kind of punches him for working too slow. And I imagine this and I went to my dorm after the reading and I wrote the first 10 pages of the epic fail. And I, I have not looked back since. That's an amazing story. How you went from the workshop to the reading to writing the 10 pages all within the same day. Yeah. And I, and I, and I really follow the, the rule of my belief is greater than your doubt. Not not yours or not yours. Yeah, or yeah, your yeah. Everybody's, but, yeah. But you know, I, I think that we we will constantly we we constantly run into people who who will have us down for whatever own personal reasons they have, and and I I I don't I don't hold it against anyone for putting me down, but I'm not going to let it stop me. There's been much work of late too on you know, revamping the way that we do workshop as well, you know, Matthew Salaces and Felicia Rose Chavez, just, you know, it's, it's recognized now that the traditional way of doing that is not conducive, really, to most writers, especially writers of color. It's just, you know, we need to decolonize that process. So I'm, I'm sorry, you you had that experience, but in a way, I think you took it and you turned it into what you needed it to be. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you, you hate to, to, to experience something, but in, in many ways, I'm glad that it was me in that way. Um, because I've had some success in my life, um, with writing 
and I've had the privilege of, you know, being able to teach now workshops, teach writing and being groups of very large groups of people and small intimate ones. And my process is always the same. It's about uh, a holistic um, approach to craft, to get the writer feeling good about the work they're doing and offering, you know, offering guidance and help through questions, not through pointing fingers or saying how they're doing something wrong. And I think that that, that to me is, is what we need to be able to encourage writers to keep writing. We need to honor the voices and we need to honor, you know, what the writer is trying to do. And then I think the best workshop helps the writer realize how to, um, you know, maximize what it is that they're trying to do. And, and for so long, it was the opposite, right? It was, it was a way of minimizing the work or like, you know, letting the supposed creme de la creme rise to the top. But it's just um, th- that model is, is not functional, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't allow for the voices that we need in the community. Um, just, you know, that example that you gave from 15 years ago, you wouldn't have been on this stage. And I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, floored by that comment. And I'm wondering if this person meant it as look how far we come, or this is the way it should be. You know, you can, you can kind of feel all of that layering of good and bad and kind of a colonial approach, really, you can feel all of that in, in that one comment. And, and, and like you, Pablo, I'm, I, and Ray too, I'm sure we're, you know, we're kind of on a mission when we teach to, to change all that and to make that uh, a thing of the past for sure. Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely getting there for sure. I do. I do. My mother being, you know, she was an educator at a time, you know, and, and a woman in a, a time in the eighties and the seventies that, you know, probably wasn't all that friendly in certain spaces to women of color. Uh, you know, when I share with my mom, you know, I mean, she came from Cuba as, as a young girl and, 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 you know, has kind of fought, fought for what she has. And now she's, you know, she has her own school and all this stuff. But, you know, I asked her once, you know, when I was kind of the first, one of the first few times that I, I got asked, you know, something derogatory or whatever, and my mother said to me, um, she goes, don't ever let them see you sweat. And that's, I know that that's an old school approach, you know, from someone who's, you know, who was coming up in the seventies and eighties, you know, having to deal with a very different, I mean, in, in the eighties in Miami where I live, there were, they, there were signs that said no dogs and no Cubans allowed in restaurants and stuff like that. So, I mean, we're, we're not, we're not so far removed from you know, even in Miami from really racist types of action behaviors. But, but, but so, and I, and I understand, I mean, there's a lot, you know, we're, we're trying to, to voice our moments of conflict or when someone approaches us in a way that, that is not um, appropriate in, in, in reflecting a, a sort of racial undertone or a racist undertone of it. Um, but, and, and I, and I respect and support anybody who does it, however they feel comfortable doing it. Right. Because I, I, I don't prescribe to someone saying you should do it this way. You know, you should, 
not let them see you sweat. You should yell at somebody. You should stay quiet. You're like I, I think that that each person is an individual and they need to experience it in their own way and they need to process it in their own way. So however it's comfortable for them. If you want to yell at some racist ass white lady for saying some stupid ass crap about you, by all means, go for it. If you want to just smile and put on a face and say, this this lady is never going to see me sweat, by all means. See, I take the, the I don't uh, the see me sweat. I, I interpreted that differently, I think. I interpreted that as you're not going to intimidate me. That's the way I interpreted it. Well, that it's part of that too. But I think that sometimes we, you know, I, I that works for me, you know, um, I don't want to presume that it, that it should work for everybody. I don't want to take away anybody's personal experience and say, like, if somebody says, well, I don't know how to do that. And then they feel like, okay, so that makes me less than, no, I don't want anybody to think that that's the way to do it. That's the way I do it. Because my mother taught me that. And that's how I proceed with my life in the times that I'm, you know, I'm given these sort of um, these microaggressions that that happen constantly. My wife went. My wife went with me to an event in. I was hosting a fundraiser in Farmville, Virginia, about thirty thirty five minutes away from Charlottesville, and there, there's a wonderful book uh, children's book festival there called the Virginia Children's Book Festival, and the organizers are just wonderful, and I really appreciate the work they do because they really bring the whole central Virginia community to Longwood university and, um, and, and bring kids who otherwise wouldn't have access to books. And they, they really do an incredible job of outreach and it's a wonderful festival. And the organizer, she asked me if I could, um, if I could host their fundraiser. So I flew out there and did the fundraiser and, and my wife came along with me and, you know, these are, this is like middle of Virginia. Uh, and, and they, you know, like, you know, they were joking around. It's like, Oh, we're redneck chic. Like was the gala. Um, and you know, you got a couple of like, boy, you did really good job kind of thing. You got a couple of like, how do you speak English so good? Um, and, and like, God, when did you lose your accent? You know, like little things like that, that happened throughout the course of the party. And Rebecca, my wife, who is not uh, Latinx, she was like, oh, my God. Oh, I have. She's like, I know you have told me, but I cannot actually believe what I'm hearing right now. But here's what I'll say. I won't let them see me sweat. And my mission to help raise money for that festival is more important than any microaggression or any passive aggressive racist ass shit that somebody's got to say about me. So they raised over $200,000 and that money goes to bringing kids from uh, underserved communities. It brings books to those kids. It brings them to the festival. It gives them educational outreach opportunities. It does that. That to me is more important. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take us 
um, in, in a little bit different direction because I read your most recent novel, The Last Beekeeper. The hum of the hive is the hope of the future. I just love that title. I got to tell you. Um, and it's one of the first, I've only read a couple of YA novels and I absolutely loved it. I really did. And what I really enjoyed about it is the world building that you do and the, 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 the world that you built in this story is so interesting. Um, especially the first chapter and you know, how you, how you end the first chapter with the big dilemma of the character, how they're going to, how they're going to uh, get the money, figure out a way to pay for school. Um, but maybe you could speak to a little bit about how you planted these seeds of this world in your mind and how, how they, you know, how did they come about? Cause there's so many themes in, in the book too. You know, there's so many things to talk about. We could talk the whole show about this book, but. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. I want to, I want to start by saying this is my first Harper Collins book. And I, I would be remiss if I did not say that I am in full support of the union uh, of, of workers at, at Harper right now who are fighting for increased wages and, and a better financial situation than what they've been given from the brass at Harper. And, you know, if, if, if the reader, if the listeners don't know about it, I would suggest just go checking on the Harper Collins union strike. Um, this is part of our, our work. This is part of our field. It's one of the top four publishers in the world. And, and I think that we need, um, we need to help, you know, uh, the creatives, you know, cause it's, it's all the way from editorial to marketing, to publicity, to everybody. And, um, I just want to show my support and solidarity with them. Um, this is a Harper book. I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the work that everyone did on it. And um, I just uh, I just want to show that support and solidarity for the for the people there. But back to the book. The book takes, you know, all of my stories follow this sort of central theme of community, family, culture. And when I when I was pushing this idea of writing a book set of roughly around 125 years in the future. It was, it was really kind of, it came about because I was, I was, I, I was watching the news and saw what, well, I don't know if y'all remember when the, the freezes kind of happened over Texas, when, uh, when the great Senator Ted Cruz decided to take a vacation, when all his entire contingency was, um, you know, freezing to death. Yeah, no power. And he's like, oh, I was always planning on this the whole time. Okay, buddy. So it was it was a really it, it was a really sad moment, but it was one that I reflected on uh very extensively because I, I noticed how this freeze wiped out all communication from for the entire state. I mean, literal cell phones. And I said, Wow, you know, and it and it kind of got me to thinking, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. And I, and I thought the only two things that are undefeated in history are 72 dolphins and mother nature. Uh, so no matter how much technology we have or we develop, mother nature is going to have her way if we don't start paying attention and actively doing something to help prevent 
the environment from completely obliterating us because mother nature doesn't care. And so I, that was the initial run of this. And so I'll give you a quick little background of like how the, the manifestation of this book, and it will help because it is a podcast for writers. So it's kind of a good, good way to kind of think about how does a book get made? So I knew that this book was going to be set in the future. And I did a deep dive way more than I ever cared to admit on like futurism and what does the future look like and all the different scenarios. And I, and I saw hundreds and hundreds of scenarios and I read and I researched hundreds and hundreds of scenarios of what our future could look like almost per decade. And there were so many that I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so many ways. And you know that, I don't know if, if you remember from, um, uh, from the Avengers Endgame, where uh, Doctor Strange looks at Tony Stark and he says, "Like, there's one, you know, you have one, one scenario that this works out." Um, that's what I was kind of looking at, and I said, "Oh my God!" So, how am I going to write a, a book for young readers, for 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 teens that covers this massive thing after nature has finally had her way? Uh, so I got the contract for this book in February, 2020, and I had to turn in the draft by August of 2020. So, you know, books to typically take about two years, uh, to, to make and come out, especially in the, in the young adult children's book world. And I, I had finished the basic outline. It was a pair of sisters protecting the last known bee. Uh, the, it was a pair of sisters that was like, I knew that they were, they were in this town and there was this highly developed, uh, you know, town that was just on the, you know, just like a couple of miles away from them. And they lived on a farm and that they were kind of struggling and I couldn't figure out why. And, and then March 15th happened. And everything shut down. And the flow that I was in suddenly stopped. And as everything started changing globally and the more news started coming out, COVID is sweeping through the world and everything is going to be shut down and all these things, I just stopped writing altogether. And at first, it was like just being stuck in this quarantine, being stuck in quarantine with my kids and my wife. And we're trying to figure out what, you know, putting them in the school, in the school, uh, the online schools and all this stuff. And then you kind of settle into this, like, well, it's, you know, we, 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 we need to make sure that the kids are okay. And then I, I just, I just started like doing, like finding baking recipes that's my work. Like I just started like looking at stuff. Cause I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it was just like a way of like, I don't want to work right now. What is going on with the world? And I just, I just started baking. I know I'm a master baker and, 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 you know, we live in Miami and, and we started seeing, you know, when, when, when there's tragedy happening, human nature is a very interesting thing. Cause sometimes you'll see people that want outwardly help or some people that, become very selfish. And we saw that over the last three, three years that, that there is people's true colors really start coming out. And we start seeing people that we know in Miami, 
uh, saying, ah, oh, this is a hoax. This is not real. And my wife's grandmother died of COVID shortly after, and that created a riff. And so we started feeling very uh, disconnected being in our own community. So we packed our bags and we drove to Vermont. And about three hours into that trip, our then one and a half year old throws up in the car all over. My other two kids get throw up all over them. We call our, our, our friend who's a doctor in Gainesville, which was about an hour and a half away. We said, look, Paloma's not well. Is it okay if we, we can go get her checked out because we're driving? And she says, yeah, please, yeah, just bring her over here. And she's a pe- critical care pediatric um, physician at, at, a, at a hospital in, in Gainesville. And we drive up and uh, our friend Jen, she s- receives her down in the lobby of the, of the hospital. And Paloma is high fever, double, double ear infection. She sees, she sees the, she does the otoscope, double ear infection. And then Paloma sneezes on her. And Jen says, you know what? Let's bring her in just to give her a COVID test, just in case after she has sneezed on her. Okay. Does the COVID test comes back. She's positive. So our friends, so we end up with her, her husband, their daughter, their dog, our dog, and our three children in quarantine for two and a half weeks. And we, and again, this is now June 15th. I have my draft is due in August and I've written nothing. I just have an outline. I've written nothing and I'm on contract and everything is topsy-turvy and I end up uh, we end up holding up together in this in their tiny apartment and we feel terrible because we gave you know th- luckily nobody got covid but we had to quarantine right Paloma was the only one she was very sick she finally got better her grandmother my my wife's grandmother had just died a month prior so you can imagine and slowly we you know and I'm and I'm I'll never forget cuz I was out on the balcony and I was I was staring at my computer I'm like I have to get to work I have to do something I have to get to work and and just there um I feel a buzz behind me and I swear it's like it seems like a movie but I I I feel a buzz and I kind of you know you hear a buzz next to your ear you you have the natural instinct is to swat it like swat right so I kind of swat away and I see this and then I look and I see that there's this bee just kind of like fluttering around. So said, oh, okay, you know, I kind of just blow at it a little bit, like, you know how we do, like trying to keep the bee away. And I just start staring at my screen again. And then I feel right in the back of my neck. And that's a super sensitive spot. I feel right in the back of my neck that something lands on my neck and I, and I, boom, smack it. And the bee falls dead on the table. I'm like, oh crap. And I, something, something came over me. Like I felt bad. I felt really bad that I had just killed this bee. Cause you know, like I know, I knew a general sense of that bees pollinate and they produce honey and they, you know, they pollinate crops and stuff like that. However, I didn't really know the extent of the impact that bees had. Now, this is where your, the experience translates into the art I start looking at this and I start reflecting on what I knew of bees and what I didn't know. And then I start researching. 
And I start researching and finding out the, the impact that bees have. Then also like the, you know, the, the population decline of bees globally, also affecting climate change. The size of the bee is so small and seemingly so insignificant, and yet they amount for over 70% of the food that we eat in this world. They account for over 70% of the food that we eat in this world. And I started learning these things and kind of figuring out, and not only figuring out what a future without them would look like, but also historically, the impact that they have had over cultures, over centuries, millennia even. And I said, that's where the story is. That's what it is. Um, so all this gadgetry and all these cool things that are in this book are ancillary to the importance that I have, that I placed on the bees and how how important I feel that they are to our own survival and the idea that this tiny little thing works together with its own community to make such an impact was, was a very powerful reminder to me of what can we do as a community, right? To help our own world. Um, and that's, that's where it all sort of came came together. It, it came together through that. And because I, I, I have to say this, all of my books have abuelas in them, all of them, um, on, in some way or another. And this one is no different because of course the, the, the one that kept the last beehive hidden and alive for her granddaughters to find was the abuelita Mariela Cicerón, who was a climate scientist in Cuba and left this book for them to help repo uh, repopulate the Earth's uh, bee population, and and the and the two sisters are are able to you know help uh, learn about uh, help help the bees learn about the bees, you know. But of course, it's a dystopian novel, so there's evil forces and uh, you know people trying to destroy the bees and all that stuff. So, you know, there's a little good adventure, but the meaning behind it is what does community mean and how do we come together to help our community and our world? And, and, and reading the book, I almost felt like I knew their grandmother and not that you went into great detail, you know, necessarily, but you know, the fact that she says, I, I, I forget exactly where it was. Uh, I guess it was written in the book that they found to all future children, be kinder to the natural world than we were. And, you know, these little, you know, Easter eggs that you have that kind of pop in through the, the book, all these, these, uh, and it just speaks to you so loud and clear. And the fact that she talks to the, to the dead grandmother too, even though she didn't really know her, you know, Dr. Yola's, Yoli's on the case, you know, like she's actually conversing with the grandmother. And I, I just found that to be very interesting that, you know, having these con conversations with people of past, I do it. I, I, I guess maybe we all do it. I don't know. But, and I think it's for ourselves more than anything, but, um, and, and how you, how you teach empathy in this book too, you know, about, uh, how she finally, you know, empathizes with her older sister and why she acts the way she does. And now suddenly she understands why, you know, because her life was forced upon her. And I mean, there's so many things in the book. I just thought it was, it was really good. I mean, it, you've, you've 
weaved so many themes through this, you know, that I thought were um, really important and so critical for young people to read. I appreciate that. That really makes me think of um, like other traditions that center on bees as well. And especially in the context of family and connectivity through generations. I know in the UK, and I think it is based in a, a Celtic culture, you're supposed to inform the bees when someone passes. Did you come across any of that lore when you were researching, Pablo? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the Egyptians, they, the, I mean, the, 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 the Celts, the, obviously the, you know, the Romans, um, uh, you know, even as, you know, as far back as the, you know, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, like there is so many, they found, they found in an Egyptian tomb, uh, in a, in a, in a clay pot, um, honey that was over 3000 years old and it was still, it was still good. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. I it's, mean, good. I don't know. I don't know if anybody put it on their toast or anything, but, but <laughs> it, it, it had not it had not rotted or evaporated. It was still intact. It's amazing how ignorant we are about this, and especially right. I mean, how important it is, and how we're completely clueless for the most part about it, and how important it is, and the impact that it's having on the world, and yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I we've got to invest in the young people because they're the ones that are going to change the world. I mean, I think we have to show solidarity with them and saying, look, no, we're not going to leave this to you to figure it out. We're actively doing stuff to help because, you know, we we and our forebears mucked up a lot of the stuff, you know, um, and we're we need to we need to help do that to be to be active participants in this uh, in this change. You know? It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't, I don't, I cannot fathom how, uh, how people, governments or, or companies or anything could put their bottom line above the fact that they are literally destroying the earth that they live on. It's like pooping in your house on the floor and not cleaning it. The earth will be here. We won't be. I can't. No, the, the Earth doesn't care if we have a house on on the east coast of Florida. Like it does not care. Right. She is not going to lose. That's what people don't get. It's like, oh yeah, yeah I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and 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 put as many emissions out in the air because you know climate change isn't real. And Mother Nature's just sitting there looking like, okay, all right. Well, Pablo, you're you're such a consummate storyteller. It's been such a pleasure to listen to you talk today and tell us these stories of your books and, and of your writing process. And I especially love like listening to the audiobook. That's one of my greatest pleasures is to listen to authors read their own work. And I was wondering if today you would also read uh, a passage for our listeners so that they could experience that as well. Uh, I would be delighted to. Perfect. The, the you know, I, I really... I thank you for for listening to audiobooks. Uh, audiobooks are very special to me. My my oldest, you know, she's a neurodivergent learner and the way that she came to literature is through audiobooks. And she's a voracious reader now. Mm -hmm. And what she does is she listens to the audiobook and reads the book at the same time, which yeah. to me is a superpower of some kind because I cannot do that. Um, <laughs> I do that sometimes too. <laughs> I, I don't know how. I mean, I would. I'm, I'm like, what, 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 what? And you know, the I, I just, I just think that audiobooks are not cheating. Okay, and um, and I hope that anybody who 
who feels like they're not reading because they prefer listening to audiobooks, I say, don't listen to anybody um, because they're, they're, they're just as important and meaningful as if you were to reading the words. So that's all I got to say about that. Um, all right. So since we were talking about abuelitas, abuelita, why were you writing so much about bees? I say, reading the author's name on the front of the book. I open the first pages and read the dedication. To all future children, be kinder to the natural world than we were. Along the flaps is an old picture. It must be Abuelita. Her hair is short and curly, <clears throat> and the colors range from gray to black to streaks of brown. She has tiny glasses on the bridge of her nose. She's smiling, and her head is slightly tilted and leaning into the red brick wall. She has the biggest, roundest, most beautiful dark brown eyes I have ever seen. A surge runs through me. It's an unexplainable feeling inside. I stare at her face for a while and find myself smiling back at her like I've known her my whole life. Hello, I say, watching the setting sun inch into the room. I scoop the book up and carefully make my way toward the door. Is there someone outside? The wind sweeps in again, causing the door to swing back and forth. I hear the faint sound of grasshoppers and little night birds starting their evening calls. Don't be silly, Yoli, I tell myself. It's just the wind. The sun highlights the strawberry patch and the trees along the farm. I look at the book again. The portrayal of bees in Vos doesn't seem the same as the bees Abuelita's writing about. She wanted the future children of the world to be kinder to the earth. Somehow the bees and their collapse are a part of that, though I don't understand how yet. There are scientific descriptions of trees and strange names of flora and fauna. Then there are details about the bees' genetic makeup and in-depth descriptions of their bodies. It's all written very pragmatically. There isn't a lot of narration, just facts and figures. I understand the language she's writing in. It's the language of science, the details of how and why things work the way they do. I keep reading through the dense writing. No wonder Kami wanted me to look at it. This is exactly the kind of research-heavy reading material I love to learn about. I look at the door again. Why didn't you ever show this to me, Kami? I say in the quiet of the shed. I land on a page with a photograph and some more information. I keep reading. Awilita describes the hive these insects build. The details on the flora and fauna are scattered across the page. It's hard to decipher all the unfamiliar words. I can see why Kami had so much trouble. But there's enough information to understand that whatever Abuelita was writing about, the answers seem to be pointing to the woods. I close the book, step outside the shed, and scan the woods. What did you leave in there, Abuelita? I love that section. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, Ray, because that was the that was what I was planning to read. <laughs> That's, yeah, I know we didn't plan that either. That's funny. Thank you for joining us for season five of PWN's debut review. This podcast is hosted by Project Right Now, a nonprofit writing studio. We would love for you to become part of our vibrant community of writers. As a gift for listening, please use the code DEBUT for 10% off a virtual class. You can learn more about all of our classes, workshops, and events at projectrightnow.org. That's right, W-R-I-T-E, projectrightnow.org. Thank you so much.
I mean, there's so many, so many um, sentences in the book that, that I loved. Oh, I know. There's one sentence that, but her, her scars have no voices, at least none that have spoken to me. And I just like dropped the book for a second and wow, that's a, that's a great sentence. You know, I just, that, that really knocked me out. So um, yeah, occasionally I do that. I just get carried yeah, away. With, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> the two sisters, the two sisters was me imagining. Cause you know, my two girls, I mean, I have three kids, but my, my two girls are 12 years apart. Yeah. And they're 12 years apart in the book. Yeah. I imagined if, if, if my two girls were left alone in a, in a desolate, desperate world, you know, and my and Penelope had to care for Paloma. Like, what would what does that look like? And it's very interesting because Paloma is when if you meet her, she's very headstrong. Um, we say that she has she has a, a very high leadership skills. Paloma's the younger one. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> she's very opinionated and uh, really doesn't take shit from anybody. Penelope is quieter, fierce in her own way, but quieter as well. Uh, you know, and and I, I just, you know, seeing them in, even interact in in our world and today, it's uh, it's fascinating. And and part of part of the the makeup of those two characters was really drawn from my two girls. Yeah, I can see that for sure. After you described your daughters, yeah. So I have a I have a question. So we talked a bit about different themes that you choose in, in your books and do they differ from book to book? I mean, is there some that, that stay the same and, and, and others that change? Um, like for instance, the environmental theme in, in this book is so strong and so prevalent and, you know, something that you, you explained great, uh, uh greatly how you, how you stumbled upon this whole thing with the beast and, and, and everything else. It's, it's an incredible story. But do you change from book to book? Do, do, are there things that suddenly strike you and you say, wow, I, I should write about that? Yeah, I, th I think it's it's usually something that's pecking at me, you know, um, that, you know, like like seeing those freezes across Texas. I read a lot, a lot. And, you know, from various, you know, news sources, but also, you know, books. And, and I just... I, I really allow myself to feel all the things that I'm reading. And then when something just sticks and it just stays there, I start mining that to understand why it's staying there. Um, so a big topic like I'm going to write a book about the environment or environmental disaster as a very big concept, right? And then it's, it's sort of, you have to, you know, that's sort of the, the little edge of the iceberg, if you will, or the, you know, you just don't, you want to be, you know, what I do is I, I, I know that there's a tip there that I see and I know there's this massive iceberg under it. And now my job is to like get my gear ready and dive into the cold, into the freezing cold water and sort of swim down to see how far the iceberg goes. Um, you know, and, and at times as I'm swimming down and swimming down, I feel like I'm running out of oxygen 
but I keep swimming, <laughs> but I keep swimming down almost in spite of my own self. Uh, and until I finally discover the, the, the depth of the iceberg, and then I'm able to kind of, uh, ascend and, 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 and sort of create from there, you know, with, with other books, you know, it's been, um, you know, I, with my, my book, the each, each tiny spark, you know, part of it was, you know, writing a neurodivergent character, you know, like my daughter and how a father tries to learn how to, you know, connect with her, which is something that I struggle with my own kid. So there's that, but then there's, you know, but it's also very much a book about social justice and raising your voice up and kind of pulling the the sheen off of what we think is everything is okay, you know, um, and, and setting it in a small town in Northern Georgia, uh, where literally train tracks separate communities, you know, um, and, or, you know, my, my book, Marcus Vega doesn't speak Spanish, which is technically a, a road trip movie, you know, a trip movie, uh, book, uh, it's, you know, these two brothers and their mom go to Puerto Rico to find their estranged, to find the estranged father. But really this is a book about identity, uh, and about feeling like you're not part of one thing and not part of another feeling like an outcast, feeling um, like you you can't really claim any culture or identity. Um, and then the epic fail is very much a story about, it, uh, about a boy and his love of his abuela, which is as pure as you can get to my to me as you as, as I can ever written because I adored my abuela and um, and, and I lost her in fourth grade and me writing this book of a 13 year was almost a lot, giving me a little more time with her. Um, but, but it's also, but there's the, the larger themes of it is gentrification. And what do we do to communities? You know, when big multi million dollar companies come in and try to just uproot communities. And so the, the themes of community of family and culture remain always. And then there's like these larger issues like the environment, social justice, identity, gentrification that sort of play into the narrative um, as the characters are growing and experiencing their world. Um, and then, you know, again, going back to the, the iceberg um, analogy, it's, it's literally going in my tiny little skiff to the tip of the iceberg, putting on my gear and diving and mapping out the enormity of the iceberg under the water. We've, we've asked this question, Courtney, of other uh, guests and who are both a novelist and a screenwriter. You've done, you've done both Pablo. And how do you determine which format to use to tell the story that you have in mind? And do you write the novel first and then adapt it? Do you outline the story first and then decide? Or, you know, how do you, how do, you do it? Everybody has a different way of, of doing it. But I, I'd be curious because I'm, you know, started writing fiction. Now I'm right. Um, I've got a screenplay that I'm working on. And I, I'm just curious how you go about it. I mean, I, I always start with story. What's the story you want to tell? Um, and dive in uh, into what... Um, What's that story? What what is what is the story that you're trying to say? I think sometimes we 
we try to fit a square hole. Uh, what is it? The square peg into a round hole um, by by saying no. But this is a this this is a piece of fiction. This is going to be a novel. This is this is a novel. This is a novel. And and you could be like it, it might be a novel, but maybe it's not for adults. You know or or yeah, it, it, maybe it's a good story, but maybe it'll serve better as a screenplay, you know, or or maybe it's a series of stories, you know. And 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 I think I think getting the story down and then being open to the various possibilities that it uh, uh, the various shapes that it could take, I think, is an important uh, thing for a writer to do. In the case of Okay, you know, I have, um, uh, if I, I, you know, for example, I, I just, I just turned in a project for Disney, and you know, and originally it was based on a very famous movie that they asked me to to reboot. So I wrote the screenplay for it, and then they pivoted after I wrote the screenplay, and they pivoted, and they said, actually, you know what, we we what we decide is we want to make this a graphic novel first. But since you already wrote the screenplay, it should be easy. I was like, no, it's not. A graphic novel is a completely different. I mean, there's scripts, but I mean, I have to think about panels now. It's a very different thing. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, here, you know, just uh, can you turn it in a month? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Not, not okay. a month from now, but I can turn it in in a month. It could be next August, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But so this, I mean, this just happened this past year and, um, I, you know, I, I, I did it, I turned it in, but the reason why I was able to do it wasn't because, you know, I, I could pivot so quickly from a screenplay to a graphic novel. It's because I knew the story. Mm -hmm. I knew the story so well. I knew the beats. I knew what, what the, what the, uh, what the whole story was about. I knew the the sing the thread really that carries throughout the novel, and then all the pieces that add to it. So, so for me, making that quick pivot was um, I mean it was time consuming. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't have to struggle with okay. So where, you know, wh where is where is this character finding their controlling belief, or where is this character, you know, having their darkest moment? You know, it's, I, I had already, I had that already figured out. Right. Right. And having the beats teed up and everything else is, is key too. Yeah. All the beats, all the emotional arcs, all the character, um, uh, plot lines, everything was already mapped out and written. And then just the form changed. So if you're thinking about a screenplay, I mean, unless you're writing for somebody that specifically wants you to write a screenplay, specifically wants you to write something, then it then I would suggest come up with a story, play around with it, see if it sounds good as a novella, see if it sounds good as a, a script, see see if the the dialogue flows naturally writing the script, right? What kind of a script is it? Is it a teleplay? Is it a feature? Right? Is it a play? Because they all the forms are different and the beats are different and and it's just all everything that that you do um, in each form has sort of these unwritten rules that you have to follow. Um, well, there are some written rules, but but you have there's these general 
general rules, I will say, of each form, whether you're writing a teleplay, a screenplay, a, uh, a play, a short story, uh, a full-length adult novel, a commercial fiction novel, a young adult novel, a middle grade novel, a picture book, a graphic novel, a graphic novel for teenagers, a graphic novel for adults. Like it's all, it's so varied. So if you get bogged down with the exact place that you want to write before you have the story, it's going to be really tough. That makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. So then my next follow-up question is going to be, okay, the last beekeeper. (laughs) When <laughs> you know what the question is, <laughs> when can we expect to see this on streaming? When can we see? I, I mean, I just pictured it as a, a, as a series, not as a film. And, and I think because the way the chapters are broken up and, and the sisters and everything else, I, I, I that's the way I saw it potentially. And I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are and are you, are you going in that direction? Well, here's what I'll say. The Harper Brass better get their shit together. <laughs> and, and, you know, come to a deal with the union and stop, you know, messing with workers' rights and pay them what they are they owed. And and then Pablo will come to the table <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and have a conversation. Because, I, I, you know, I told my agent the other day, I was like, and we have to support each other. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the editors and, and publicists and... They work so many hours and many of them living in New York and, and like, I mean, just pay them a livable wage. Right. Um, and I don't want to get on a soapbox about that, but I just, you know, it, it, it just, it, it's just baffling to me. Well, I was in, this is, we're, we're recording this on December 2nd. So I guess it was, I don't know what day it was beginning of the week I was in the city and, um, people were on the, on the lines, you know, they were, they were marching. And um, it's a big deal in, in the city. What's going on? It is. It is. It is. And and you know, I was at the um, the National Book Award ceremony uh, in November, and you know, wearing our pins and and doing showing the support. You know, because we're we, if we have to show solidarity, um, with with our people. You know, we have to. Uh, that's part of that's part of our work, and so back to the back to the last beekeeper and any subsequent iterations or sequels or whatever. Um, oh yeah, no, we're talking. But I talked to my agent. I was like, yeah, until they figure something out, I ain't moving. Um, and I signed a petition form and I did all that stuff. Um, so, but I'm ex- I I hope they come. I hope they come together with something because I have I have been asked several times. When can we expect the sequel and and uh, what's next with it? And there are some stuff happening that I cannot yet say. Well, hopefully, hopefully the this gets resolved soon, and hopefully by the time this this episode drops next next spring. Um, but I have one last question too, Pablo. So we we like to ask, you know, what are your other um, artistic endeavors that you might enjoy, um, just from like previous conversations and reviewing your work, like cooking, dancing, making music, those all come to mind for me, for you. And then you've talked a lot about film and television, uh, today as well, but is there, is there a particular activity that like really inspires your art or like recharges you creatively? Is there something that, you know, just really keeps you moving forward when it comes to your creativity and your art? 
I, I love that question, Courtney. Thank you for that. So I, I'm going to say this, and I think it's important for me to say this, um, and I'll explain why. I'll tell you the things that artistically I'm really good at, and then I'll tell you the things that I love to do creatively. All right? I'm a good writer. I'm a very good actor. I'm a great cook. And I love to sing and dance. Um, <laughs> That pretty much says it all right there. <laughs> you know, so I, I you know, I, I've, I've, had, <laughs> I've had success as an actor, as a, as a writer. Um, and I worked in kitchens and I'm a, you know, I am the family chef in the house. And, you know, um, but Penelope's the singer. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the dancer, I've got like three moves that are pretty solid. Um, I've got like, you know, three, like, you know, everybody expects, you know, cause I'm Cuban American. Everyone's like, um, uh, you know, yeah, I'm Cuban American. Oh, so you should dance salsa really well. And I'm like, I mean, I've got rhythm and I've got like three moves, three go-to moves. If it's a wedding, you're good. Oh, I, don't, I just came back from a wedding <laughs> in Cartagena, and I was cutting a rug with those three moves for like three straight hours. Because <laughs> you can hide. You know, you can yeah, work your way I, through the crowd, and, and not everyone's watching you. So, not you everyone, know, not yeah, I, I get it. I do the same thing. I got two moves, though. That's it. That's <laughs> two mediocre moves. <laughs> yeah. No. I can sing pretty good, though. I can sing. I. I, you know, my wife has mercy on me and she's like, no, you, you have a nice voice, which is like code for like, I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> hey, I wouldn't download you on Spotify, but you know, you could probably stay on a subway somewhere in a subway. All right. Well, this has been delightful. We really appreciate your time, Pablo. We're so glad we got to reconnect with you. I think I think it may have been since Jamaica when we were all three in the same room. So it was it was really great to talk to you. And all right. Well, again, thank you so much. It's yeah, been great. Yeah, thanks, Pablo. It's been great. Hey, it was it's wonderful. And I'm I'm just so happy that that this this podcast exists. And I'm just so grateful to you both for all the great work you're doing and, and for having me on today. Thank you for listening to PWN's Debut Review. This podcast is hosted by Project Right Now, a nonprofit writing studio. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen. And stay tuned because our next debut could be you. PWN's Debut Review is produced by Jennifer Chohan and edited by Adam Wells and Lisa Hartsgrove. The theme song, Don't Look Away, was written and performed by Mimi Cross and produced by Kevin Salem. Questions, comments, suggestions? Email us at debutreview at projectrightnow.org. <laughs>